in the movie Courageous, Javier Martinez is uh, facing one of those moments in life that could change his life forever. This this defining moment. He's been working at this warehouse for the past month, and uh, he's been called into the owner's office and offered this promotion. Uh, this promotion to a management position, this promotion that's going to come with an extra pay raise and, of course, an extra responsibility. Um, there's only one thing standing between him and this promotion that's right in front of him. And it's simply this. Write down the number 16 instead of the number 17. There's going to be 17 crates coming in, but on your inventory sheet, write down 16. And that's all you have to do in the job is yours. After all, it's just one little number. It's just one crate off from what the true number is. And if he writes this number down, he gets the promotion. If he writes this number down, he's going to have everything that he wants. If he writes this number down, everything's going to go great for him. But if he doesn't, he's definitely not going to get that promotion. There's a good chance that he's probably going to lose the job that he has, which is his family's only source of income and the only way that they're able to pay their bills. And man, this seems, this seems like such a small thing. Just a small little compromise here. And probably, let's be honest with you, that nobody's going to know except for him and the owner of the warehouse and the other guy sitting in the room whose name is Walter. Other than those three, nobody else is going to know about it. Is it really going to be that big of a deal if, if he puts down the number 16 instead of the number 17? Besides, like his wife said, maybe it's not wrong. Maybe it just looks wrong. After all, he's the owner of the warehouse. And if he tells you this, then, then maybe it's all right. So uh, Javier's got everything to gain and nothing to lose. If he's just willing to compromise just this much, if he's willing to compromise just enough of his convictions to tell this one little lie. Now, for you guys that have seen this movie, it's been out for a long time. You know that Javier sits in that office and he actually looks at the man who's offering him this promotion and he refuses to compromise. He refuses to compromise his integrity and he refuses to compromise his conviction. And he tells this owner, listen, I, I love this job that I have, but I can't do what you're asking me to do. I cannot compromise my integrity and I cannot do this because this would be dishonoring to my God and to my family. And so the, the truth is that he's so unwilling to compromise the truth. He's so unwilling to compromise the trust that, that comes with that position. And so what he's found out is that this is actually a test of is he willing to compromise the truth or is he not? Because as soon as he gives that answer, the owner of the warehouse looks at him and says, that's exactly the answer that I was looking for. The truth is the job is yours if you're willing to take it. I need that to know that I can put somebody in that position that I can trust. And so as he ends up walking out of the office after accepting the position... Javier is walking out of the office, and he walks by that other guy in the room whose name's Walter, and Walter looks at him and says, you know, after six times, I was really starting to become discouraged. You see, they had done this same test with six other people, and all six people before Javier had, were willing to write down 16 instead of 17. All six people were willing just to make just this one little bitty, tiny compromise to the truth. And they were willing just to, to get this pay raise. They were willing to compromise the truth for the promotion. They were willing to compromise their integrity for this pay raise. But Javier, he was different. He refused to compromise. and He was refusing to give away the honest truth. He was refusing to go against what he knew was right. And, and I don't know for sure, but there's something that makes Javier different than those, those other six men. And I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that maybe he has a little information from this guy that we're going to talk about today named Daniel. 
And, and when you talk about that, this guy named Daniel from the Bible, and we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1 this morning, and that's not the story that most people are familiar with in Daniel, uh, in the book of Daniel. Most people automatically go to Daniel chapter 6, which is Daniel in the lion den. But I'm going to tell you that I honestly believe that Daniel wouldn't be in a lion's den, and he wouldn't have the faith to be in a lion's den if he didn't have chapter 1. We wouldn't get to chapter 6 if there wasn't chapter 1 in the book of Daniel. So we're going to be in chapter 1 today, starting in verse 3. We're going to read down through verse 21 which is the end of the chapter. I know it's, a, it's kind of a long section for us to read, but this is a beautiful passage of this guy named Daniel who is, a, is a unwilling and refuses to compromise. And our prayer is that as we read through this passage, as we work through this passage, that God gives us this same resolve, that God gives us this same determination, that it may just look like a small thing, and after it may not even be wrong, it just because it looks that way, that we'll have the same answers that Daniel does. This is the line, and I refuse to cross it. And so for some of us, we're going, to read the, we're going to hear this message. And for some of us, we're going to walk out here encouraged to know that there is faithfulness and there, is, there are other people like us. And for some of us, we're going to walk out of here with this idea that, hey, God rewards this kind of behavior. But for some of us, we are right on that line. And I don't know where you're at this morning, and I don't know what their line is. But for some of us, we are inching closer and our toes are about to cross this line. And some of us may even be leaning over that line quite a bit. And so for some of us, and my prayer is that when we leave here this morning, we haven't just heard this story about Daniel, but we leave here with this idea of this is what it took for Daniel. This is the strategy or the tactics that Daniel had to be able to refuse to compromise, even in the very face of of death himself. And so let's go ahead and pick up the story in Daniel chapter 1. Verse 3, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah has been destroyed. Uh, They have started to deport people back to Israel or back to Babylon. In verse 3 it says, The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court official, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, prospective, and capable of serving in the king's palace and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal table, or the royal food, and from the wine that he drank. And they were, to be, and they were trained for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to serve in the king's court. Among them were the descendants of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the, king's, or the chief official gave them other names. He gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. And Daniel determined that he would not defile himself or defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. In verse 9, God had granted Daniel favor and compassion with the chief official. Yet he said to Daniel, My lord the king assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your face looking thinner than those of, your, of other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard, whom the king official had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine your, our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food. And deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. In verse 15, at the end of the ten days, they looked better 
and healthier than the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine that they had to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed them. And among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to serve in the king's court. In every manner of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted about them, he found them ten times better than the diviners and the priests and the mediums of the entire kingdom. Verse 21, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for the confidence that you give us. God, confidence to stand on mountaintops. Confidence to to stand in the face of a lion's den. God, confidence to stand in face of a giant. All these stories that we have been working through this summer. God, all these Old Testament heroes that we knew and we grew up with. And God, we thank you for all of those stories. But God, we thank you that they're not just stories of thousands of years ago. God, they are examples for us to live out and to live through. And so God, I pray this morning for this story. God, I pray that you use your word to speak to our hearts and to the situations we find ourselves in. God, for some of us, we are struggling with an individual compromise. There's a temptation or a sin that is right in our face, and we are just almost inches from giving in to it. And so, God, I pray this morning that you equip us with the tools we need through your word, God, to be able to step back from that. God, I pray for us as a church, for us as believers, for us as Christians across this world, God, that we will not be willing to compromise the truth that you have given us, that we will not compromise the standard and your word this morning, Father. And so, God, through your word, give us the strength and the tools we need to see what it is that we need to to be ready to, to the enemy that's going to bring against us. God, give us the tools and the tactics through your word. To be able to live a life where we refuse to compromise anything that you've revealed to us. And so God, I pray that you speak to us this morning. And God, whether it's as an individual or whether it's as a church, God, I pray that we are bound and we are ready to take this commitment that we will refuse to compromise. And God, I pray that you speak and I pray that we listen. God, I pray that from this day forward and from this moment on, God, we are changed because of the words that you have spoken, the words that your spirit has written down. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the early 2000s, there was a cable and internet provider uh, named Comcast. And Comcast had some major uh, customer service problems. In fact, in 2004 and 2007, the American Customer Satisfaction Index survey found that Comcast, get this, was the worst customer service rating of any company or government agency in the country. That included the IRS. Okay, so think about that for a moment. These guys have a worse customer service rating than the most hated business in the world, okay, or at least in the U.S. In 2004, one survey found that 87% of Comcast customers said they were either dissatisfied or very dissatisfied with the level of service that they received from the company. In 2008 and 2009, a division of the Consumer Reports magazine rated that Comcast was one of the top three worst companies in America. And then they topped that in 2010 by actually winning the award and becoming the worst company in America. 
And that same year, 2010, the executives kind of got together and they kind of huddled up and they thought, we've got to do something about this. We're starting to lose money. Things are not going well. And so we've got to come up with a better plan. We've got to come up with an idea how to fix this. How do we turn this company around? And so in 2010, this group of executives from Comcast decided that the best thing they could do to get rid of this bad publicity and and turn the company around was they were going to change the name of the company. They were going to go by a different name. Instead of Comcast, they were going to go by the name of um, Xfinian, okay? And so they decided, and they were hoping that by changing the name, it would erase the bad connotations and the bad experiences that people have with Comcast. What they were really hoping to do was, if we change the name, we can really kind of erase the past and look forward to something better. And so this company spent millions of dollars in rebranding and re-advertising it. And think of all that, that would go into that. A company spent millions of dollars just changing a logo. And, but this company, they were changing their name. And so they had to, they had to put uh, promotions out there. And they had to do all this stuff. And it cost them millions of dollars to, to go by this new name. The sad thing is that the only thing that changed for that company was what they wanted people to call them. You see, Comcast never changed their legal name. They were corporately still known as Comcast. There was no corporate restructuring that happened. In fact, um, the customer service department, which was the problem the whole time, it remained the exact same. Just when you called, they didn't say, thanks for calling Comcast anymore. They said, thanks for calling Xfinian. Okay? And so customer, Consumer Reports ranked them as the top three worst companies, again, in 2011 and 2013. And then again in 2014, they won the award for being the absolute worst company in America for a second time. You see, one marketing expert says that what Comcast should have done is they should have spent more time and energy fixing their customer service problem and less time trying to figure out what name that they wanted people to call them by. You see, the expert went on to say that if we learn anything from the rebranding of Comcast, it is this, that changing the name of a company doesn't erase its past or its past reputation. That you're not fixing anything by slapping a new label on something that's already broken. And so if you want to fix something, you don't fix a name, you fix what the problem is. You see, Comcast was more worried about what people were going to call the company than what was actually going on. They were more worried about what people were going to call and what they are going to say their company's name was rather than the people they were trying to serve or should have been serving. And I'm convinced, and I would agree with this expert, uh, that Comcast should have worried less about what people called them and more about the developing this customer service plan and about making this a better company than it should be and than it was. And I think that if we're going to live this life and refuse to compromise, as Daniel does, I think this is probably the first lesson that Daniel teaches us. That we actually need to worry less about what people say about us and more about what matters the most. You see, some of you might remember last week we talked about this idea of the Babylonian captivity and how when the Babylonians captured an area... They had a very different way of controlling it, okay? When the Romans or somebody else captured an area, they they occupied it. They would put a a troop or a garrison or a platoon in that area. And so if there was an uprising or a rebellion, they would take care of it really quick. The Babylonians had a completely different idea. Instead of occupying this area, we're just going to take the best and the brightest out of this area and move them to our area, okay? So we're going to take all the people who are insightful, all the people that are good, all the people that are smart, all the people who could raise problems for us because they could be potential enemies for us in the future. We're just going to take them out, and we're going to put them into the king's court instead of getting rid of them. You see, this is their way of controlling it. We see this in verse 3. He says that they're supposed to take some of the royal family... And from the nobility. 
Right? So how do you control the rest of these other people who are part of the royal family? Well, you've got part of them over here, so these guys are going to behave because they don't want you to mess with these guys. You've got their next generation over here, and so we're going to follow your rules because we don't want you to wipe us out completely. At least if you've got our next generation, we've got some hope. All right? But if you wipe them out, we're done. And so verse 4 describes the young men that they were looking for. All right? It says they want young men without any kind of physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledge, perception, and the capability to serve in the king's palace. All right? They wanted the best and they brought it. They, they wanted people who were influential in their ear. What they wanted was people who other people would be inclined to follow. All right? So that if they could convince this group of people how good Babylon was, then this group of people could convince everybody else how good life was in Babylon. And so these were the folks that they could convince. And so in verse 6, it tells us that we don't know how many of them there were, but in verse 6, it tells us that, that four of them's name were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Right? So we don't know how many of them, but we know at least these four, these were potential leaders. And so they were taken back to Babylon to start kind of this three-year training program. Other people would call it this three years of brainwashing school. Okay? But for three years, these, these four young men, plus however many others there were, and we don't know how many there were, they were taken into Babylon, and they were given the best of everything. They were going to be given the best food. They were going to be given the best uh, school. They were going to be given the best idea. And so what the goal was, they were really hoping these potential leaders would come to appreciate the Babylonian culture and the Babylonian tradition, and then they could convince everybody else how great this was. So that if somebody didn't like the Babylonians, then these guys who were, were wealthy, these guys who were knowledgeable, these guys who were potential leaders, they could squash a revolt before that ever happened because what they would do is they would look at these other folks and say, listen, life really isn't that bad here. You know, think about it. Like, think about where we came from, and now think about where we're at. Think about the city that you left and how it was destroyed, and think about this beautiful city that we're living in now. Think about how well it is here and, and how really we don't have anything else to go back to anyway. Besides, look how smart these people are. They've got all this stuff figured out that we never even thought about. And listen, if we would just kind of lay low and be quiet and kind of listen to them, man, we could learn so much more from them. If we, uh, instead of fighting against them, maybe we should just learn from them. And so you have these potential leaders who are now kind of being indoctrinated by this message, who are going to spread that message to the other people. And so it's a way to prevent these revolts and these rebellions. And so uh, this, this begins to happen over and over and over. And so this is the goal of the Babylonians. And so part of this training, part of this three-year program, was that you try to get rid of the Hebrew identity, and you try to replace it with a Babylonian identity. Now, to do that, one of the first things you've got to do is you've got to change their names, okay? Because names are very significant. Names in the Old Testament, New Testament, even some names today, they're tied to a reason. They're a reason that people give certain names to certain people, okay? Our, our three kids are all named after family members because we love family. We think family is great, and so we've named them all after family. So the first thing that the Babylonians do is they try to take away this Hebrew identity by giving them Babylonian names. And so we read in verse 7 that of all four of them that were mentioned in verse 6, all four of them are given new names. Right? Daniel's new name is Belshazzar. Okay? It's a good thing he's probably a teenager at this point because goodness knows he probably couldn't spell Belshazzar when he was a kid. Okay? Hananiah is now going to be known as Shadrach. Mishael is now going to be known as uh, Meshach. And Azariah is now going to be called Abednego. Now, for many of us who are familiar, those are the names that we're familiar with, right? So think about it. It's kind of odd if you read the story of Daniel, if you read the book of Daniel. Daniel always goes by Daniel, 
right? He never writes himself as Belshazzar. He always writes himself as Daniel. Anytime you see Belshazzar, it's because somebody else called him that, right? But if you get over into the chapters where it talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's the names that he calls them. It's kind of odd. And so understand that, that part of the reason they changed these guys' name was because all of their Hebrew names were connected some way to God and God's chosen people. All right? the, the, and so their idea was, listen, we're going to change these names, and the four names they give them are all connected to Babylonian deities. All right? So instead of Yahweh being our judge, now we have Velt, which is a, a Babylonian god. He's going to be the one in charge. Instead of Yahweh protecting or God protecting, now we have this other deity who's going to protect. And so you would kind of think that as these guys are smart, and as these guys are, they've grown up, they're, they're later teens, or probably at this age, you would think this would be a sticking point for them. You would expect that, that you, I would almost expect Daniel to step in back, no, listen, my name is Daniel, and it's spelled D-A-N-I-E-L, not Belshazzar, because one, I can't spell it, and two, you're not going to call me that. You're going to call me by my name, because that's who I am, and that's the God that I serve. You would expect him to do that. You would expect some of these other guys to stand up and to object to their name being changed because their name is connected to the God that they serve, right? But we don't see that. And it's a very interesting point. Because at some point they've realized that it doesn't matter what other people call them because it doesn't change their identity of who they are on the inside. What people call you on the outside doesn't reflect what you are on the inside. And so that's the first lesson that Daniel teaches. Listen, if we're going to be this willingness, if we're going to have this will not to compromise, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to care less about what other people say about us and more about what's on the, happening on the inside of us. You see, what Daniel knows and what these other guys know is that regardless if they call him Daniel or Belshazzar, he's still an Israelite. He's still one of God's chosen people. It doesn't change who he is regardless of what someone calls him. It doesn't change the fact that he's one of God's chosen, that he's one of God's blessed. It doesn't change the fact that he's probably within the royal line or in the nobility line. It doesn't change any of that. And so for some of us, we need to stop being offended by what other people call us and focus more on who we are on the inside. Because we'll be less likely to compromise when we're less worried about what other people say about us and more concerned about what we are and who we are on the inside. You see, these guys knew that it didn't matter what people called them. It didn't change the relationship with God or the connection they had. It was completely independent of what other people said about them. And I believe that we'd be much less willing to compromise our values, our morals, and our character if we cared less about what people said about us and more focused on what was going on on the inside. You see, I'm convinced that if most of us lived in this reality that we are God's children on the inside, then we wouldn't compromise the outside. I'm convinced that if most of us knew on the inside that we were fearfully and wonderfully made, if most of us knew on the inside that we were His workmanship, that we were His handmade masterpiece, as it tells us, then, then we wouldn't care what other people said about us on the outside. We wouldn't care. It wouldn't make a difference to us. You can call me Michael. You can call me whatever. You can call me. It doesn't matter because on the inside, I know that I am God's creation. I know that I'm a child of God. I know that I was made in His image, that I was bought by His blood, that I was redeemed by His resurrection. I know that's who I am. And it doesn't matter what you call me. Call me what you want to. I don't care. And so I want you to understand one of the tactics of the world for everybody sitting in this room is to call you something that you're not in hopes to bring you to a place of compromise. Some of you young ladies sitting in this room, you'll understand this a whole lot more. You see, when a young man looks at you and he says that you're ugly, when a young man looks at you and says that you're unlovable, that you're undesirable and nobody wants you, that you're unworthy of anything, you know what he's doing? 
He's trying to bring you down to a point that you're willing to compromise your values to make sure that you know that's not true. But if you knew on the inside what God says you are on the inside, that you are beautiful and you are a masterpiece of the God of the universe, that you are handcrafted by Him, then who cares what that man says about you because you know who you are on the inside and you're not going to compromise to go to His standards because you've got a God who's got a much higher standard than Him. Listen, when we as a church, when we as Christians hear these words that are called to us, these names that are thrown at us, words like bigot or we're intolerant or we're unintelligent or we're anti-science, and all of those are to bring us to this point of shame, to bring us to this willingness to compromise God's standard. And nobody likes to be called names. Nobody likes to be labeled with these titles, especially if these we inside we know that these titles are not true. It's not true to who we are as a person or as people or who we're called to be. And so none of us like this, but understand, this is a tactic that Satan is going to use over and over and over again. He's been doing it for thousands of years. Let me give you a new name. Let me call you something else so that you're willing to compromise your values. You're willing to compromise your standards. You're willing to compromise your moral ground so that you can kind of say that you're not who I said you were in the first place. Well, guess what? We're not who he says we are in the first place. We're who God says we are now, tomorrow, and forever. And I'm convinced that we need to understand that we are found in Christ and our identity belongs to Christ. That we're created in his image, bought by his blood, made new by his creation and his recreation and we need to stop worrying so much what everybody else says about us and focus more on what God says about us and listen to me if we will know on the inside who we are and who we belong to then the names they call us on the outside they won't hurt near as bad and we won't compromise near as much because who we are on the inside is what matters and Daniel and these other guys they don't care what you call them because they know that what matters most is their relationship with God and what you call them doesn't change that at all when I was a soccer coach, I, I had this tactic of trying to find out as much about the next team we were playing as I could. And so there were several websites that I could go on and kind of scout out their players without ever seeing them or, or, or showing up at their practices. There were several websites I could go to where coaches would list their, their stats of their players and sometimes newspaper articles. And so if I had a game coming up on uh, Thursday or Friday, I would or Thursday because we weren't allowed to play on Friday because football has that day, right? We would have to play on Thursday. And so if I had a, a game I was getting ready for on Thursday, then probably Monday or Tuesday, I would start reading newspaper articles. I would go on those websites, and I would be looking for some key things. One of the things I always wanted to know about a team was who their leading scorer was. And the second thing I wanted to know was how much he was the leading scorer by. All right, now let me make that clear to you. I wanted to know if player number 10 was their leading scorer. But I also wanted to know whether he was the leading scorer by a whole lot or by just a little. Because that makes a difference in how I make my game plan. You see, if their leading scorer is number 10, and he scored 20 goals in the season, and their next leading scorer has only scored 5, you know what that tells me as a coach? They're a one-trick pony. And so I can whole structure my defense. All i got to do is keep player number 10 from getting the ball. And if player number 10 doesn't get the ball, then player number 10 can't shoot. If player number 10 can't shoot, then he can't score. And if player number 10 can't score, guess what? Hardly anybody else in their team can either. So there's a pretty good chance we're going to win that game. So I structure my defense and offensive strategy on stopping number 10. But if I look on the stat sheet and I find out that player number 10 has 10 goals, but player number 12 has 9 goals, and then this player has 8 goals, and this player has 8 goals, and this player has 7 goals, that's a whole different game. 
that changes how I structure my defense and my offense. Because if I enter that game and I say, hey, all we got to do is stop number 10, I'm going to be in trouble. Because while I may stop number 10, number 12 and number 14 and all these other guys, they're going to be shooting like crazy. So I could not imagine as a coach walking onto a game field and not having a game plan worked out in my mind. I, I couldn't imagine walking onto a field and be like, you know what, guys? That number five over there, he looks dangerous. Let's go after him. Only to find out that number five is the water boy. All right? I wouldn't do that. No coach would do that. In fact, there's, there's ten NFL games going to happen at one o'clock. And I know some of you are already checking your watches. I saw you, okay? You are, can I tell you something about those ten games? Plays number two, three, four, five, and probably six, seven, and eight, they're already determined. The only thing that's not determined is are they going to get the ball first or second. That's what they don't know. But I can guarantee you, out of those 20 head coaches, they already know what the play is, they know who's going to do it, and they know where it's going to go. Why? Because they've already decided beforehand, this is the game plan we're going to use. This is the path we're going to use to success. If we're going to win this game, we're going to do it this route. This is our best route to do it. I don't know of any NFL coach that shows up in the field and be like, hey, you know what, you guys just go out there and do what you want to today. No, man, they've been studying this opponent for a week solid. They've been getting ready for this. Because before they get into this game, they want to know what's coming. Before they get in this situation where they're going to have to make these decisions, by the way, you've got 40 seconds to get your team ready and the ball to go, you can't get a team ready in that if you're not prepared beforehand. And so what do you do? You know where you're going beforehand. You know the plays beforehand. You know the game plan before you get to the game. But I'm convinced that so many of us compromise because we don't know where we stand beforehand. We wait until we get in a situation and then try to make a decision of where our boundaries are at. We, we try to make a decision of, am I going to do this or am I not going to do this? You see, and for Daniel, he shows us that, that this not only applies to, to sports, but this really applies to our lives and really applies to temptation. This idea, if we're not going to compromise, if we're going to refuse to compromise, then we've got to make our stance beforehand. You see, Daniel had a game plan, and honestly, he knew where his boundaries were at long before he got to the point of compromise. You see, in verse 5, it says that they were going to have the royal food and they were going to have the wine to drink. And, and man, this is, this is great. You're taking a group of guys who their, their uh, city and their town and their whole area has been under siege for a long time. They, they have resorted to eating um, you know, anything they could find. And all of a sudden, you're going to take them and put them in the king's palace. And you're going to give them the same food that the king eats and the wine that the king drinks. This isn't the servant's food. This is what the king eats. This is the best of the best. Right? You're going to put it on a plate in front of them. And you're going to say, go ahead, guys. This is it. This is your moment. Go for it. And so Daniel gets to this point. But before he gets to this point, he already has his mind made up that he wasn't going to participate in this. See, back in verse 8, it says, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. A different translation would say that Daniel resolved or Daniel made up his mind. However it's translated, understand the same thing is going on here. This is past tense. Okay, So Daniel had already made up his mind. He'd already dissolved or resolved or determined that he wasn't going to eat the food's king. He'd already made up his mind that he wasn't going to do this. And he'd already established these boundaries of I'm not going to compromise here long before he gets to the point where he's needed. You see, there's probably three different reasons why he's not going to participate in this. The very first one is that as a Jewish person, he's not allowed to eat pork. All right? No barbecue for him. All right? 
My wife grew up in Lexington. That's a very hard pill to swallow, okay? Praise the Lord, he didn't call us to be Jews. He called us out of that, okay? Because we wouldn't know what to do. So there could be no pork. Number two, even if something was considered clean, by the way, Leviticus chapter 11, there's a whole list of things that you could eat and couldn't eat, okay? But even things that were clean on that list, they had to be prepared a certain way. They had to be kosher, okay? Not kosher deal pickles, but they just had to be kosher. They had to be prepared a certain way. Right? And so, listen, what he's telling you is that, that, that there's a good chance that on that food, there's going to be some pig. There's a good chance that on that plate, that, that even what's clean is not clean because it wasn't prepared the right way. Okay? Or, there's also a good chance that the food that was on that plate had been sacrificed to an idol or a false god before it was served to the king. Because you give it to God, and then you serve it to the king. That's the way they did things. So any of those would have defiled Daniel. Any of those things would have made him unclean and unfit for God. Any of those things would have hindered his relationship and interfered with his relationship with God. And so Daniel didn't wait until he sat down at the table and he saw the barbecue on the plate and his mouth watered. He didn't wait until he saw that ribeye on the plate in front of him with his mouth watered and just smelling that. He didn't wait till that moment to make up his mind. Now see, Daniel had already determined. He'd already made up his mind. Daniel, before he sat down, knew he wasn't going to do it. Before he, he, he got to the, the, the table, he'd already made up his mind. Before he ever was invited to the dinner chamber, he already knew this wasn't going to happen. So here's a very important lesson for us that we need to make sure that we're understanding. That if we're going to refuse to compromise, we need to know where we stand before we're put in a compromising situation. You see, because in those moments of compromising situation, in the heat of the passion, it's not your best decisions. Don't wait until your moments when you're face-to-face with temptation to figure out whether this is good or this is bad. You need to know that long before you get there. And see, if we're going to resist temptation, if we're going to resist this idea, we need to make sure that we understand to make this stance long before we get to that point. When you sit down at a table and everything is smelling good and everything is looking good, and by the way, everybody else at that table is chowing down and scarfing it down, it may be a little too late to make your decision then. Because you may find yourself joining in in what everybody else is doing instead of what God's called you to do. Make your decision before you get in that moment. Make your decision of where your boundaries are at before you get to those places where the lines are already blurred. But listen, if you're going to refuse to compromise, you need to be prepared to know that when you do it, there's going to be some risk involved. There could be a costly thing for you. In fact, the chief official knows this very well in verse 10. He says that while he, the chief official, said to Daniel... He says, My Lord the King assigned your food and drink, and I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the King. You see, understand that for Daniel to reject this food is not just a rejection of food. It's a rejection of the program that the King has designed. For Daniel to reject this food is actually a rejection of the King and his plan for what, God is call- for what the King is trying to do. For Daniel to reject this food is for Daniel to reject the king himself. And by the way, kings don't like that very well. Kings don't like it when you stand in front of them and you reject their ideas. And so this chief official, he knows this. This chief official knows that this is risky and it's dangerous not only for Daniel, but what he's proposing is dangerous for himself as well. You see, ancient kings, they're famous for killing folks, and they're famous for torturing folks, and anybody who would dare defy them or get in the way or not follow their orders, they are notorious for taking them out. And this chief official, he's probably witnessed this over and over and over. By the way, if you're a chief official, you've been in the business for a while. 
You've survived when other people haven't. That's how you got some of your promotions. Somebody didn't listen to the king? They're gone. By the way, now you're in that spot. Okay? So he's seen this happen over and over and over. He's watched these people be executed. Because you don't just execute them in private. You do it in public where everybody can see it. And so understand the chief officials looking at this situation. He's like, you know, Daniel, this is, this, this is dangerous. I don't know that you know what you're asking for here because not only are the king looks at you and you're skinny and you're frail and you're not healthy like these other guys, he's going to come for me because it was my job to make you healthy. It was my job to care for you. And he's going to say, you didn't do your job. And guess what's going to happen? It's going to be my head on the chopping block. And even though I tell him you refuse, he's going to say, you're the chief official. Force feed him if you have to. Understand, this is risky, not only for Daniel, but it's risky for everybody else. And so there are times that when we take a stand, there's times when you draw the line that it's going to cost you something. In fact, it could be very costly, not only for you, but for the people that are around you. And sometimes we need to be aware that there is risk when we're willing or we refuse to compromise. But there's also a greater risk anytime we refuse or anytime we, we do compromise and we turn our back to God. You see, Jesus makes this clear in Matthew chapter 28, verse 7. Or, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, 10, verse 28. I've got the reference. I just said it wrong. In Matthew, Jesus says this. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, feel, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. You want a motivation not to compromise? Understand that there's a God who controls far beyond this world. Understand that death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Understand that even though there's pain and suffering in this world, it is not as bad as it's going to get for some people. You want a motivation not to compromise? Understand there's a God who can punish you for all of eternity. And Daniel's telling you, and Jesus is telling you, listen, you want to fear something? Fear Him. Don't worry about somebody. The worst thing they can do is kill you. Because guess what? For us as Christians... The best thing that we happen that happens to us is that we die. The best thing that happens to us is that our life on earth here ends. Because when our life on earth ends, we walk into a heaven that is far greater than anything we can ever imagine. And God says, and Jesus is telling us in this story, and Daniel says, listen, if there's risk involved, take it. Because you bet you're as much more dangerous if you turn your back on God than turn your back on somebody. The worst thing they can do is make your life miserable or make your life end. And let's be honest. Some of us turn our back on God for far less than that. Some of us turn our back on God simply because we don't want somebody to talk about us. Some of us are willing to turn our back on God because we don't want to give up a promotion or a pay raise. Some of us are willing to turn our back on God because we don't want to change the way somebody looks at us or talks to us or or we don't want to lose that friend that we have. And so we're willing to turn our back on, on God because we are so afraid of what other people are going to do and yet the words of Christ are so clear. Don't fear what anybody else has to do or say about you. Fear the one who has control over both your body and your soul and can do it for all of eternity. I read somewhere that when you're on a diet or you're going to start a workout plan, the thing that makes it the easiest is if everybody is on the same page. And so my wife is a very patient person. And so she has done some diets and she has done many workout plans. And I'm going to be fully honest and tell you confession in this moment. She has done them all by herself. Okay? Because I don't do vegetables. Okay? So understand, this is a very hard passage for me to preach. All right? Because I don't do vegetables. But 
Folks will tell you that if you're going to be successful in losing weight, if you're going to be successful in getting fit, then the best thing you can do is find somebody who's going to do it with you. And so if you go on one of these keto diets or Atkins diets or all these other diets that I don't even know what they are, if you're going to be on that, then everybody in your house needs to be on that same diet. Okay? Except if you're the pastor and you get your own secret candy stash where nobody knows about it. Okay? But it's easier to stay committed to whatever it is you're doing if other people are doing it too. Everybody knows that, right? It's easier to go out, and for you guys that are runners, it's easier if you have somebody that's going to look at you and be like, hey, we've got this run coming up, or we've got this race coming up, we got to go run together. And I'll go with you, and I'll make this commitment with you, but it's easier to make this commitment because, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not a huge runner, and I get tired of running really quick, and so for me, I find myself be like, eh, that's a mile. I know I said I was going to do four today, but that's one that's good enough for me. But if I've got somebody else running with me and they say, no, we said we were going to do four, now we're going to do five. Then suddenly it's harder to back out at one, okay? I'm like, mm, maybe three, okay? It's harder to back out on a commitment when you share that commitment with somebody else. And so Daniel understands this fully well. And so in verse 11, Daniel goes to the guard, the chief of the officials that had been assigned to get this, not just him, but he goes to the chief official who's assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And do you notice what he says? Hey, test your servants. Not one. Test us four. Now, I don't know, because it doesn't say in the Bible, I don't know if these other three guys were on board with this. I don't know if they were kind of blindsided by this. I don't know if they'd all determined this in their heart, or if Daniel just kind of spoke up for the group, and be like, hey, here's what we're going to do, and you guys are in. Okay? Uh, we don't know. We just know that Daniel goes to this one guy, and he says, hey, test your servants. Us four are in this thing together. You guys with me? Whether you did or not, you're in it now, okay? We're doing this. This is what we're doing. And so Daniel knows that if he had to sit there at a table by himself with maybe 50 other people sitting there eating, it's going to be a whole lot harder. But he knows if he's sitting at a table with 46 other people eating and four guys sitting, or three other guys sitting beside him, and he looks over and this guy's not eating anything but vegetables, and that guy's not eating anything but vegetables, suddenly his vegetables don't look so bad either. All right? Understand that if you're going to refuse to compromise, one of the best tools you have are the people sitting around you. One of the best tools you have in your refusal to compromise are other Christians who are willing to walk this commitment with you. Other Christians who are willing to go step by step with you. And even though it's costly for you and costly for them, they're willing to go the distance. And so find somebody, one, two, not a whole group. You can't look at this church and be like, this whole church is going to be my accountability group. No, find two, three, maybe four other people and say, hey, together we're going to do this. Together, we're going to hold each other accountable. And so if I start to lean too far or fall off the edge, somebody in this group is going to pull me back. Your best tool in making a commitment and refusing to compromise is, is first, the strength that God gives you, but second, the people that God has surrounded you and put in your life. And so these guys know that it doesn't just take one. They're all in this together. And they're all going to do this commitment together. I just mentioned that, that I've started doing a little more running than I used to, and my wife and I uh, have a, certain routes that we run. And uh, There's a certain route that we run, and there's a dog on this route. He's a massive dog, all right? He's huge. He's this big, massive, white, fluffy dog, all right? And, and, and he's, he's a good-sized dog, and he barks, okay? But we're not really scared of him because he's in this fence. And we know that as long as said dog stays in said fence, then we're good to go. The other thing that gives us a little bit of encouragement that said dog is going to stay in said fence is that about a foot off the ground 
is an electrical fence, okay? So the dog sees us running, he starts barking at us, and he knows this electrical fence is there. And it's almost humorous to watch this dog, because what this dog does is he goes and he wants to get as close to you as he absolutely can. And so he does. He gets so close that his nose almost touches the electric fence. And then you'll watch him because it shocks him. And then he just shakes his head like, what, what just happened? And you know what he does? He goes back and puts his nose right back in the same place. And it shocks him again. And then he starts barking some more and he shakes his head and he goes right back to the same place again. And it's almost fun to watch. Like it gives me a little bit of comic relief in this painful idea of running. That this dog, there's some animal that's stupider than I am that I'm out here running by nothing. And yet this dog keeps going to the same electric fence and touching over and over and over again. But then I'm reminded of how often I am like that stupid white dog. Who I come to a situation where I know this is the limit and what I try to do I want to get as close to it as I can. And if it pops me, then I take a step back, and then I come back to it again. And it pops me, I come back to it, and I come back to it time and time and time again. You see, one of the best things we can do if we are going to refuse to compromise is get as far away from the compromise as we can. You see, it would make much more sense for a big white dog to stand in the middle of the yard and just bark at us from there. That way he don't get shocked. It would make much more sense for us as Christians... To see this is the line of sin. This is the line I'm not going to cross. And by the way, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be leaning over and try to grab whatever's over on that side. The grass really isn't greener over there. It would make much more sense of us to say, hey, this is the danger line. Let me go stand back over here. Let me see this line from a distance. And then whatever's over there, I can still see it, but I'm not over there at it. And so Daniel kind of avoids this idea of, of this uh, uh, compromise, because he's not willing to, to get close to the line. You see, in verse 12, he says, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. That's it. Vegetables and water for the next ten days. And I'm just, this is the Michael Rakes version, okay? This is a miracle in itself. Because after ten days, they look healthier and better than the other people, right? I can guarantee you that if I've eaten vegetables and water for 10 days, I'm not going to look healthier and better than anybody. All right? Mainly because I don't do vegetables, but we've talked about that. All right? So, listen, vegetables, every vegetable was considered clean under Jewish law. Every vegetable that you could eat, it was okay. You didn't have to worry about whether it was clean or unclean. You didn't have to worry about that. Every vegetable, you didn't have to worry about whether it was prepared or butchered away a certain way because there was no blood that you were having to worry about. Vegetables were not offered as sacrifices to false gods. And so what he's doing is he's seeing the line, and he's getting back away from it. You see, what he could have done is he could have got as close to that line as he wanted to. He could have got as close to that line without going over the line as possible. You see, he could have got up to that line and be like, you know what, that steak looks really good. And I can just ignore the fact that it may or may not. I don't really know. I can plead ignorance to how it was prepared. And so I can get just a little bit closer to doing that. I can get just a little bit closer because I don't really know if this food was offered to a false god or not. I don't really know that, so I'm just going to plead ignorance, and I'm just going to lean over a little more. And he could have gotten closer and closer and closer, and inched even closer and reached over that line over and over again because he could have tried to plead ignorance. But you know what he's doing with saying, give me vegetables and water? He's saying, listen, I don't know where that meat came from, so I'm going to take a step back from it. I don't know if that meat's been offered to an idol, so I don't, want to be, I don't even want it on my plate. I don't want it to contaminate anything that's on my plate. So just give me vegetables, because I know without a shadow of a doubt that every vegetable is clean. 
I know without a shadow of doubt that every vegetable is not going to defile me. It's not going to get in my way of my relationship with God. And so what he's doing is the best way to avoid compromise is to stay as far away from it as possible. We ought to, instead of leaning in towards compromising and trying to get as close to the line as we should or we, we think we can, what we ought to be doing is saying, how far away from this line can I get? The real question we should be asking is not how close to the line I can get without going over. It's how close to God should I be in this situation? Think about that in those moments of compromise. Think about those moments when you're tempted beyond all measure. It's not how close can I get, how far can I go, what can I watch, what can I... How about, what about, how much closer can I get to God in this moment? Wouldn't that change how you face temptation? I know it would me. If in those moments, I was more worried about what God was thinking, more worried about growing into God, and more worried about being closer to God, and about being the holy one that He's called me to be, than I was leaning over that line. And so one of the best defenses we have in refusing to compromise is not leaning into the compromise anyway. It's leaning further away from it to find out how much holier and how much more set apart we can be. Now, I'm not telling you that vegetables is going to be on your plate today. I'm not telling you vegetables is the only answer. But for whatever your situation, whatever your temptation is, maybe you shouldn't be asking the question of how far I can go, but how far away from it can I stay? How close to God can I draw in this moment? And it will totally change how you approach that situation. There's one final thing about this passage that's just amazing to me. And simply that God rewards Daniel's refusal to compromise. And He makes him and the other three, I have told you already, He makes them look better and healthier than the other guys that had compromised their values. By refusing to compromise his values, Daniel gains a special place. He is allowed to influence the culture of the Babylonians in a way that he wouldn't have been able to if he hadn't done this. You see, Daniel, I've told you, he's in this group of four, but he's also in this bigger group. We don't know how many of them are. And so all of that group sits there and they compromise except these four. They're all willing to give in. They're all willing to go through this program. They're all willing to eat whatever is put in front of them. And Daniel and this group of three or four are not willing to do this. And at the end of the ten days, Daniel and these three other guys, they look better, they look healthier than anybody else. And do you see what happens because of that? In verse 16, this guard, man, he was so skeptical. He was a fear of his life. He knew that if this was going to be the death of him, and Daniel was going to be the death of him because of this. In verse 16, the guard says, Continue to remove their fruit or their food and their, their wine. And they gave them to drink, and he gave them vegetables. You see, this guy who was a skeptic at first has now become a believer in the God that they serve. This guy who questioned what they were doing, now believes in what they're doing and is willing to do what they've asked him to do. He continues it well beyond the ten days, but God continues to reward Daniel and these other three because in verse 17 it says, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. And Daniel could also understand visions and dreams of every kind. In verse 18 it comes test time. In verse verse 19 it becomes test time. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to interview these guys. And he's going to whittle this pool down. He's going to take only the best of the best of the best now. And he's going to let them work for him. And the rest of these guys are going to be either let go or kind of serve as court gestures or servants or scoop poop in the, in the courtyard or something. We don't know what's going to happen to them. But he's only looking for the best to be his advisors. And so he comes to this point after the three years that he begins to question them. And he begins to to evaluate them to see which one's the best. And verse 19 says, The king interviewed them. And among all of them, right, amongst all this group of Jews who some compromised and these four didn't, amongst all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
So they began to serve in the king's court. These four men who didn't compromise now sit in the king's court. They're his advisors. In fact, they become his most trusted advisors. So much that in verse 20 it says, Every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the other people, all the other the, the people in Babylon, all the other smart people. These guys were ten times better than them. So who do you think the king's going to go to for advice? If you were a king, who would you go to for advice? Somebody that gives you ten times better advice or a Comcast who, who just changes a name? but it doesn't change anything else. Now, you're smarter than that. You're going to go with the best and the best and the best and the brightest. You're going to go to the ones who have the most knowledge, and you're going to go to the ones who, who have the best. And so the, this idea that they gain, gain this ability to advise everybody, the king himself, they are able to give him advice, they're able to give him wisdom, and they point him in an awesome direction. In fact, in verse 21, it says that Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So if you look that up, that's about a 60-year time frame. There's a lot of kings between Nebuchadnezzar and King Cyrus. But about 60 years, Daniel is one of the most trusted advisors. He's the one that sets the king's right hand. And the king looks at it and says, hey, what do you think about this? Daniel's the one that tells him. Hey, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Daniel tells him. In fact, some of you heard uh, the um, Gospel Project lesson this morning about Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. And who was it that he, he asked about? It was Daniel. Who was it that when, Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar was willing to, to understand who God was? It was Daniel who was right there. Let me fast forward this story to an amazing part of it. In the New Testament, when the new baby king Jesus is born, who is it that comes to visit him from the east? It's the wise men. You know who the wise men were? They were the nobility of the Chaldeans. They were the people of Babylon who had heard about this king that was coming. They were the people, the wise men of Babylon, who knew these prophecies. And guess how they knew them? Because the God, Daniel, sat at the king's right hand, and he taught them in the king's court for 60 years. Do you realize the beauty of this section? Because he refused to compromise, he has the ear of the king, and not just the ear of the king, but the ear of the nation. And he's willing to and able to point people 100 years later to Christ because he refused to eat their food. Listen to me carefully. Church, we will never win this world to Christ if they can't look at us and tell the difference between us who follow Him and us who do not. We will never win this world to Christ By compromising Christ and the message of Christ. If we're going to win this world to Christ, which is the goal of all of us, if we're going to do as we have been talking about on Wednesday night, your kingdom come, your will be done, that's the prayer of all of us. If we're going to pray that prayer, then guess what we've got to do? We've got to be willing to stand out and stand alone. We've got to be willing to say, this is the line and I'm not going to cross it. We've got to be willing to say, I don't care what anybody says about me. I know what God says about me and I fear Him more than anybody else. And so I'm not willing to cross this line. I don't care what you say. And all of a sudden, people will see something different in your life and they'll be like, listen, something's different about that guy or something's different about that lady. And whatever they've got, I want in my life. We'll never win this world, to the, or we'll never win this world for Christ by trying to be more like the world than we are trying to be more like Christ. The only way that we're going to point people to Christ is by being more like Christ and less like this world. And so we cannot compromise on the value and standards that God sets for us as individuals. We cannot compromise the values and the morals that God has put for us as a church. We cannot compromise those things because if we do, we've surrendered Christ. 
to live like the world. And all the time, what does God say? Be holy because I am holy. If we're going to win this world for Christ, we've got to start acting more like Christ and less like the world. Let's pray together.